are looking at a couple of scripture passages this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and Luke 22, verses 41 through 42. Listen to the word of the Lord. Jesus said, pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And from Luke chapter 22. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will speak into the deep and most protected corners of our hearts. I pray that your Spirit will illuminate the text for us, help us to understand a little bit more about prayer and this amazing prayer that your Son and our Savior taught us to pray. And help us, Lord, in our hearts to respond with lives of faith and trust. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so last week we began a series of messages, and we're looking at the, and we're talking about prayer, and we're looking at the Lord's Prayer uh, as a guide, as a pattern for, for prayer. Several years ago, there were a couple of politicians, you may have heard this um, story before, and they were in the middle of a heated uh, race, a senatorial race, and they were at their, at their debate, and they were in the middle of a debate, and people were watching the debate, and, and the one candidate says to his opponent, his opposing candidate, he says, you know, the difference between me and you is that I have values, and my values are based on my faith, and you don't have any values because you don't have any faith, and the candidate says, well, excuse me, of course I have values and of course I have faith. I've been a Christian my whole life. I've gone to church my entire life. And the candidate said, the other candidate said to him, well, you may have gone to church your entire life, but that doesn't mean you, you know, have any faith. He said, I bet you can't even recite the Lord's Prayer. And the candidate says, of course I can recite the Lord's Prayer. I, I can recite the Lord. I know the Lord's Prayer by heart. I say it all the time. And he said, okay, well, I bet you 20 bucks you can't recite the Lord's Prayer by memory. Candidate says, you're on. All right, fold your hands, close your eyes, bow your heads. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And the candidate goes, man, I had no idea you knew how to pray the Lord's Prayer. So so the thing is, of course, Many of us know the Lord's Prayer even better than these two political candidates uh, may have known the Lord's Prayer. We know the Lord's Prayer by memory. We, we know the words of the Lord's Prayer. But have we ever stopped to, to really think about the meaning of each of, these, of each of these words? Have we considered what these words actually mean, what this is really about? And so our aim throughout this series is to kind of dive deeper into this prayer that we have prayed for so long and so many times. Uh, Jesus gave us this prayer 
to, to be used as a pattern for prayer, to help us to grow in our understanding of prayer and to grow in our relationship with God. And he says, when you pray, pray like this. And we're meant to unpack it. We're, we're meant to uh, savor it. We're meant to, uh, to let it marinate and to contemplate it, to dive deep into it. And so my hope and my prayer is that by the time that we're finished with this series, that we will have not only a better understanding of the meaning of the words that we're praying when we pray the Lord's Prayer, but that we would have uh, a, a larger imagination for prayer in general and that we would be able to grow and strengthen our prayer life with God in a conscious manner. And so today we come to the second part of the prayer, the second petition. You remember the first petition in the prayer, and a petition is when you ask God for something. And the first petition in the prayer was, hallowed be thy name. Now the second part of the prayer is that we have the second petition. Let's go ahead and say it together. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this one phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father Daniel Harrington was a Jesuit scholar, and, and he suggests that this phrase is the central phrase of this prayer. The central concern of the entire Lord's Prayer is this phrase. But I would actually even go beyond that to say that this is the central concern of Jesus' life. That this phrase, what we're talking about today, it lies at the center of his ministry. And if we understand the depth of this phrase, we understand a little bit more about what he's doing when he dies on the cross and when he's resurrected from the grave. This one line summarizes Jesus' ministry. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so there it is, another three-point sermon. Let's go ahead and unpack it uh, one phrase at a time. Uh, thy kingdom come. We begin with the word thy, thy kingdom come. You might remember last week we began with the word our. We pray to our father. He's not just my father. He's not just your father. He's our father, and he's even the father of the people we don't, disagree, we don't agree with and the people we might not even like very much. He's their father too. Well, and then we talked about uh, hallowed be thy name and the difference between when we say, when we use the word thy in this prayer, hallowed be thy name or thy kingdom come and then later when we get towards the end and we say thine is the power and the glory um, forever what we are doing is we are saying that and it's coming against one of our most uh, basic um, one of our most basic impulses which is my so when we say thy kingdom come we are saying not my kingdom come, but thy kingdom come. And by the way, the word thy, of course, is an old English word, and it just means your, your kingdom. And so we have in the more modern translations, your kingdom come. But this little word, my, or mine, or me, or I, this is a word that we learn very early on, like when we're little on, and we're on the playground and somebody takes one of our toys and what do we say? Give it back, it's mine, it's mine. And, and so at a very, very young age, the word mine becomes a really important word for us. 
And that doesn't change when we, when we get older, right? Me, mine, I, me. It's all part of our vocabulary, but it's not just part of our vocabulary. It's part of our hearts. We have a tendency to function as though the world revolves around us. And so every time we use the word thy or thine in the Lord's Prayer, it's a way of shaping our hearts different from the way they're naturally oriented. And so when, when I pray the Lord's Prayer, when I remember, I try to emphasize the word thy. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because I want to be reminded that it's not about me. Uh, it's not about me. Harry Emerson Fosdick was one of the great preachers of the first half of the 20th century. And he wrote, I think, one of um, at least one of my favorite books on prayer called Prayer. Very creative title. Uh, and, and he notes in this book that prayer is really not about giving advice to God. Do you think God needs your advice? <laughs> no, God doesn't need your advice. Do you think God needs you to tell God stuff that God doesn't already know? No, God doesn't need us to tell God things that God doesn't already know. Do you think God wants to do good things in the world? Yes, we believe that God wants to do good things in the world, of course. So then what is prayer and what, what's prayer all about then? Well, on the one hand, at a very basic level, prayer is just about being with God, about communing with God, about connecting with God, about being in relationship with God. And God takes delight every time we open our hearts and we open our mouths in prayer. When we say, God, oh God, and you open yourself to God, God takes delight in that. Just like you take delight when your children call you or when your grandchildren call you, or your parents take, take delight when you call them, just in the act of making the call. There's a, a joy that God has in the moment of connecting. And one of the benefits of prayer is that we, we lay our stuff before God. We lay our concerns before God, and in doing so, we seek to let them go. We seek to trust God with our concern. If we have a concern, and if we can voice that concern to God, then maybe I can let that concern go and trust God to take care of it in God's way. And so our, uh, our, our petitioning God is less about convincing God or uh, coaxing God to do something that God doesn't want to do. And it's a lot more about training our own hearts. Training our own hearts. And especially, I think, with this prayer. It's about training our hearts and letting go of things. So when we're praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, God doesn't need us to ask him for his kingdom to come. I'm asking God, first and foremost, I'm asking God to shape my heart to let go of my kingdom and the world being all about me. And so when I pray this, thy kingdom come, and I expand it to say, not my kingdom, and I'm sorry for, for the times when I've made it about me. I'm sorry for the times when I've, I've, I've chosen my own desires over yours. I'm sorry for how often I don't think about your will and I'm doing my own instead. Help me, O oh Lord, so that in my deepest desire would be that your kingdom would come on earth and your will would be done. Shape my heart to reflect your desire. When we think about the kingdom coming, what does that actually mean? Thy kingdom come, when we say that. What does that look like? 
I would mention here that there are a couple of different dimensions about the kingdom. There's the kingdom that is to come, which we understand and we believe is the promised kingdom that will come at the end of time, at the end of history, that at one, uh, there will come a day when God will finally say, this is enough, no more. And that is what the scriptures say. And, and when we get to that point, the world will become as it is in heaven. God will refashion the world and transform it, right? And so heaven will come to earth and earth and heaven will be one as we sing every Advent. We also believe that when we die, we enter in this life. And when we die, we enter into a heavenly realm. So there's this sort of state, this place or this realm, heavenly realm that we enter into when we die. And we are with God and we um, and there's, you know, all the suffering that we have experienced, the pain that we've endured is all gone. And we're in now a state of wholeness and a state of bliss with God. And and so the heavenly realm is this place where there is no more pain, there is no more hurt or hardship or brokenness, and where love and grace and mercy and kindness and justice rule all the time. That's what God's will is, that it would be like that all the time. And it's not that way on earth now, but we believe that it's that way in heaven. Sometimes we use heaven as a metaphor to describe like an ideal state. So we might talk about our, our food, you know, maybe you went to a nice restaurant and you say that, oh, the food was heavenly, you know, or there's even, you know, a ski resort in Lake Tahoe called Heavenly because they want you to have that kind of an experience when you pay $400 a ticket to go to their resort. Um, why? Because we have this picture in our minds that someday that there is a place, that there is a place where things are good and kind and beautiful and right and just all the time. We can imagine it. And so there's this sense that there's a future that will one day come to earth when God says no more and Christ returns. And that when heaven will come to earth, we're praying for that and that those who believe in Christ will be receive new bodies and all of that. But we're also aware of the fact that that exists in some sense already in the heavenly realm. When we die, we enter that place or state of being where there is no more suffering, sorrow, and pain. And at the same time, we also believe that that heaven breaks in to our world and to our lives, even as we, we know it. And so we get glimpses of heaven. We get glimpses of the future. And it actually breaks in every time that we do the things that God wants us to do. So when you show kindness to someone else, when you work for justice in the world, uh, when you sacrifice to help another, you're giving a little glimpse of heaven on earth, a future that is going to come in its fullness. When you're acting in this way, when you sacrifice, we're getting a foretaste of heaven. And so heaven breaks in in glimpses on earth. Jesus came preaching, and this is what he preached. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is upon you. The kingdom of God is at hand. He even says the kingdom of God is within you. Uh, and so it's breaking in. He came bringing, inaugurating the kingdom um, 
And so repent, change the way you think, change your paradigm so that you can see the world the way Jesus saw the world and that you can see God's kingdom breaking in and then participate in that kingdom unfolding. Uh, so the kingdom of heaven comes every time you give yourself to doing the things that God asks you to do. And when you pray, thy kingdom come, and then you roll up your sleeves, you're actually doing something about it, which is really the point of the prayer, not to get God to do something, but to invite God to do something through you, through you, right? Thy kingdom come, O Lord, through me. Shape my heart to be about your kingdom in the way I live my life so that your kingdom will come through me. Help me uh, to do something about this. God's will is done, and we get a taste, a little taste of heaven. Now, of course, this is what we try to do in our lives, and we, we try to do this in the church and through the ministries of the church. The church isn't the kingdom, but the church is an outpost of the kingdom, and every week we are sent back into the world with that wonderful charge that you have been saying to one another for I don't know how many years or decades, but likely many, and it shapes your imagination more than you may have even realized because it sends us out to go to be about bringing about God's kingdom in the world. And so when biblical scholars talk about the idea of the kingdom of God, they say there is the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. It's here, but it's not here in its fullness. When our loved ones um, who die and go and be with the Lord, it's, it's here for them. Heaven is here for them, but it's not in its full completion yet until Christ returns. You've heard me talk about this before a few times. So when you go to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, you, we have prophets that talk about a day that will come. Uh, a day that, that they could imagine in which the sword will be beaten into a plowshare where uh, sp spears will be turned into pruning hooks and so that symbols of war and destruction will be replaced by symbols of cultivation and new life. Uh, a day when the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Animals won't tear each other apart anymore. There will be no more war. This is the picture in the Old Testament of the messianic age and the kingdom coming. And in the New Testament, we get a picture of what that looks like primarily, first and foremost, in the life of Jesus himself. In his birth, in his life, in his ministry, in his death, and in his resurrection. And by the way, um, Frederick Dale Bruner, who's a Matthew scholar, I think he's preached here before, and he wrote a commentary on Matthew. He says that if you really want to know what the kingdom looks like according to Jesus, just read the previous chapter. Read the Sermon on the Mount. He says the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, the, the Lord's Prayer is built within the Sermon on the Mount. But if you read Matthew chapter 5, that is Jesus' picture, that is Jesus' image of this peaceable kingdom, this new kingdom that he is bringing about. So we have this in Jesus, and, and then and so we get a sense of, okay, well, what is the kingdom? Well, it looks a lot like Jesus. And then we get to the end, and we get another picture of this in the book of Revelation, right? When there comes a day when God says, no more, and the world stops as it has been, and God transforms it, um, everything. And, and the writer of Revelation in chapter 21, he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. So there's this phrase in the New Testament called Maranatha. You've heard the, this phrase Maranatha. It means come Lord. And in the first century when the Christians were being persecuted, um, this was their call. This was their prayer. Come Lord and end all of this finally. Come and bring your new creation. Uh, Maranatha. Come O Lord. Bring your kingdom about in its fullness and end this uh, suffering that we experience. So thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Let's consider this phrase for a brief moment. There's a struggle for us as human beings. Remember as we were praying, thy will be done, we're intentionally saying, not my will, but thy will be done. But as human beings, we struggle with this. Uh, in the opening story of the Bible, you remember Adam and Eve, they were placed, they were created and placed in the midst of this beautiful garden. You think of the king's garden and um, luxurious and exotic animals and just the most magnificent beauty you could imagine. And God said to them, you can have anything in this garden. It is for you except for the one tree in the middle. Don't eat from that. And remember, this story is not, as I've said before, in my view, is not primarily a story about two people who lived long, long time ago. It's a story, it's an archetypal story about you and me. It tells the story of what it means to be human. And so God says you can have anything you want, but there's this one tree in the middle, and I don't want you to eat from that tree because if you eat from that tree, it will hurt you. You are, you are not able to, you cannot handle the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So let's just leave that one for me. I'll take that one. You can have all the other ones you want. And which is the one that they want the most? Uh, of course, where do they set their sights, right? On the one tree that they cannot have. Is this not your story? Is this not my, my story? We don't like rules. We don't like to be told no. You know, if the speed limit is 55, you drive what? 60. If the speed limit is 65, you drive what? 74. If the speed limit <laughs> is 70, you drive 80. We don't like the rules, right? We, we um, are, are just prone to resist these things. We're constantly pushing against it. In this case, Adam and Eve, they, they hear the whisper of the serpent, right? And we all hear the whisper of the serpent, and the serpent says, oh, did he really say that? We hear the whisper of the serpent when he said, when we hear things like, you deserve this, or, or just this one time, or nobody will know, or it's just a little, or your friends think it's cool, or 
Who does he think he is telling you what you can and can't do? This is our story. And so they ate the fruit. Paradise was lost. They broke the one rule that they had. And, and this was their prayer. Adam and Eve, essentially their prayer was, Lord, not thy will, but mine be done. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, and Jim shared this with me this past week in The Great Divorce, that um, there are two types of people in the end. Um, there are those who say to God, thy will be done, and there are those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And so we sort of choose our own path, our own destiny in this regard. And so this is a picture of what we have, our, our human condition. It's mine, it's yours, we all struggle with it, we want to do our will. And for many, uh, the more comforts that we have, the more um, luxury we have, the more conveniences that we have in our lives, the less we like to be told no. Uh, you know, if you go to the developing world, they are so used to hearing no, 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 no. Our friends in Kenya, they hear no all the time. They have to live with no all the time or just wait. They have to wait. People who are poor, they have to wait all the time. Um, and and, and yet it's a challenge um, for, for us, as I think, especially um, to deal with no. And so here's what we're praying. Please, Lord, I want you to tune my heart so that my deepest desire is to do your will, not mine. So I want to pause here just for a moment to say that when we talk about God's will be happening in the world, Oftentimes when bad things happen, people will say, well, it must have been God's will because it happened. And, and so allow me to remind you that, um, that we wouldn't have to pray for God's will to be done if God's will was all the time happening. Uh, so all kinds of things happen that are not God's will. Um, much of what happens in the world isn't God's will. I mean, just look back through history, the Crusades, the Inquisition, the transatlantic slave trade, slavery around the world, ethnic cleansing, human trafficking, Hitler's Germany. None of this is God's will, right? This is not God's will. Um, and yet it happens anyway. Why? Because we choose to live, we choose to say, Lord, not thy will, but my will be done my kingdom and my will and and this is why we have to pray not my will but thine be done and so when you see something tragic when there's a terrible earthquake or the twin towers collapsing or the conflict in the holy land sure much of this is predicted gener generically in scripture but that doesn't mean that it's god's will it's predicted in scripture because god knows our hearts he knows what we are prone to um, so we want to try to not let our minds go there because we're, we just want comfort and security. And if we can just say, oh, well, that must have just been God's will, then, then we don't have to, you know, take responsibility of our own suffering. No, much of what happens is not God's will, which doesn't mean necessarily that it's so someone else's fault. It could be the result of a fractured cosmos. We kind of talked about that a little bit this morning in the class. But... Our task is to do what we can to pray and to roll up our sleeves to say, thy will be done, so that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I want to remind you of what Jesus prayed on the night before of his execution. 
He was with his disciples. It was the night of the Last Supper. He shared this long meal with them. It wasn't a McDonald's Happy Meal, but probably a six, you know, a six-course uh, Seder kind of meal, Passover-type meal. And he spends this wonderful evening with them. And then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is going to be betrayed and he's going to um, be arrested and sent off to uh, the execution uh, cross. And he's in the garden, and he takes Peter, James, and John, and he says, now you, th you three, I want you to sit here and pray. And then Jesus goes a little bit deeper into the garden, a little further into the garden, and he falls down. And when was the last time you fell face down before God? And he cries out to God. He says, Lord, first says, Father, take this cup from me. And of course, the word cup, what he means is this burden that he's about to bear, this cross that he's about to bear, the cup of blood. Uh, take this cup from me. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I can't do this. I don't want to do this. Yet not my will, but thine be done. Uh, and so this wonderful prayer, not my will, but thine be done. In his mind, somehow he knew and could imagine, he could say, I know, Father, that somehow you're going to use my death for your redemption and for your glory. That somehow when people look upon the cross, when they look upon me on the cross, they will have a sense of their own brokenness and they will have a sense of God's great and deep love for them. And, and in my resurrection, there will be hope. He knew that in his in his head, but in his heart, he felt, I don't, I don't want to go through with this. Uh, yet not my will, but thine be done. You know, the New Testament calls Jesus the second Adam. And so the first Adam came praying, not thy will, but my will be done. The second Adam came praying, not my will, but thy will be done. This is what we see in Jesus, regardless of the cost, he was willing to pray this prayer. And that leads me to the last line. It will be br quick, uh, brief about it. Let's say it together. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Will Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas, they are from at Duke Divinity School, and they wrote a wonderful book about prayer. And in their book on the Lord's about the Lord's Prayer, they say that in this line, unexpectedly, quite surprisingly, at this point in the prayer, politics has crept into our Christian prayer precisely at this point. And we're going, oh, really? Politics in the Lord's Prayer? That's the last thing I want to see. Now, politics has been defined by some as who gets what, when, where, why, and how. If you're a poli-sci major, you can tell me if that's not a very good definition and give me a better one. But essentially, politics is about ordering our world. And when we pray, in this particular case, we find Jesus saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, not in my heart as it is in heaven, not just in my family as it is in heaven, not just in my own little circle of friendships or in my little neighborhood as it is in heaven, but on earth as it is in heaven, the whole earth, across the earth. 
What, it, what, of course, it's not saying is that we should have a theocracy, that we impose ideas on everybody. But what it is saying is that we should be desiring for the whole world to look like the kingdom of heaven in every sphere and in every area of life. And that's why um, we have so mission partners like Kenya. I mean, because we don't just care about our own neighborhoods, but not even just across the world, even down the street and across the valley, uh, all of earth, we, Jesus prays for God's kingdom to come. When we pray this prayer, we're not just asking God to do this. We're asking God to help us to work towards that end together. Anglicans use, they have this Latin phrase that they think really summarizes the Christian life. And I, I think so too. I think it's a wonderful phrase. It's ora et labora. Ora means uh, to Ora means pray, and labora means work. And so it's pray and work, or work and pray. Richard Rohr kind of has a similar thing he calls action and contemplation. But the idea is that out of our sincere and faithful life of prayer, we are formed and we are shaped in our prayer, and we are empowered and equipped and then motivated to then go out into the world to work. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we are working, if we do that too long, uh, we will eventually start working for our own kingdoms again. And so we have to return back to God in prayer. And so it becomes this rhythm to where at, at, at some point you end up doing both at the same time. You're out there working in the world and you're living your life of prayer at the same time. And it's this constant rhythm of work and prayer. Ora et labora. Work and pray. Pray and work. Those of you who work in the field of organizational leadership or in leadership at all um, have likely heard of a man by the name of Ronald Heifetz. Ronald Heifetz is uh, an expert. He teaches at Harvard's Kennedy School, and he founded the Center for Public Leadership. And he's regarded as one of the foremost uh, experts on theories of organizational leadership, especially in, he developed a theory called adaptive leadership. And he says that this is, this is what successful leaders do. And I would suggest that it's not just what l successful leaders do, it's what people do. It's really what Christians are called, every single Christian is called to do. It's what we're praying in the Lord's Prayer. So here's this diagram. He says, okay, this is my incredible artistic uh, capacity here. Um, draw on a piece of paper, take a picture of it, send it to Jared. Um, here's the world as it is, and there's the world as it's supposed to be. And the leader's task is to try to close the gap. Um, pretty simple, isn't it? And so what is your picture of the world as it's supposed to be? Well, for Jesus, it's the kingdom of heaven. He devotes 500 verses of scripture to describe this to us and what it means. Again, read Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and, and you'll get a good picture of the world as it's supposed to be. And here's the world as it is. And our job is to do what we can to try to move the needle as a congregation and as individuals to try to close the gap. If you've ever been to England, you've probably ridden on the tube before, the subway there. And there is, you'll know that there is this gap between the platform that you stand on and the subway that you step onto. And if you're not careful, you can slip and get your foot 
caught in there and you can get your foot sliced off. And so every minute over the loudspeaker, you'll hear either a female voice or a male voice say every minute, mind the gap, mind the gap. Our job as Christians is to work to mind the gap between the world as it is and the world as it should be. So I just want to ask you this morning, how are you minding the gap? How are you minding the gap in your own life? Do you have a picture in your mind of what the world is supposed to be like, let's say in your own little sphere perhaps, and what are you doing to make that happen? When you pray this prayer, you're praying, Lord, help me to mind the gap. Use me as an instrument of change and transformation in the world. I'll give one example from our congregation. There are so many, um, and every one of you in various ways, but this is a very um, obvious example. Um, you probably know Tom Metcalf has been a longstanding member of this church for many years, and about 36 years ago, Tom was influential, and critically influential in um, getting the seatbelt law for minors passed here in the state of Utah. I just actually um, saw there's, you can go to Google and Google his name and Tom Metcalf and seatbelts. And you'll, you'll see, you can see an article from 1989 on August 14th in the Deseret News. This was several years after he, they passed the law. Then he built a coalition to get people to sort of obey the law and change their habits. And and it's called practice restraint is the uh, is the is the name of the of the title. But why why did he do that? He was a pediatrician. He wasn't a politician. Why did he do that? Because he noticed that there is a difference, a gap between the world as it is and the world as it should be. And he felt responsible to do something, whatever he could to to bring about that kind of change. What a wonderful example that is. And there are so many others in our congregation, including what we just heard this morning about Kenya Partners. So one, uh, I mentioned Dale Bruner. Um, he says that we have a hard time understanding the word kingdom because we don't live in that kind of, um, uh, of a governing system. And so a better way he su suggests for us to think about it is to think of the government of God. Oh God, would you govern us? Would you govern us? You, may your government come. May you govern us. May we live like you're governing us and may our governing of ourselves reflect your will. And this is why we pray for our politicians and our, our government leaders as well. Even if they don't know Christ as Lord, we still pray that God will use them to accomplish his will in the world. So I wonder what we could do what are the needs today in the Salt Lake Valley? Clearly, 30 years ago, there was a seatbelt issue for minors. We have our own issues. We have many young people, adolescents, who are, uh, suffer major um, mental illness and, and struggles with depression. And we're going to have some opportunities to address that in the coming months. Um, but that's what we're about. That's what we're to be about, bringing about God's kingdom. And so my hope and prayer is that when you pray this prayer that you mean it when you pray thy kingdom come not my kingdom but your kingdom and and the hope that it will come in its fullness one day will be the motivation and the strength uh, and the energy by which we will work for that today 
And God, may your will be done, not my will, not my will, but your will be done and shape my heart to accomplish your will on earth as it is in heaven. And so together we're rolling up our sleeves, seeking to live out that prayer. And this prayer becomes the rhythm of our lives and the mission for what we do every single day when we work together as a congregation, making the Salt Lake Valley to look a little bit more like heaven as God calls. So that's my hope and prayer for us. I want to invite now um, our musicians to come.